message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here with us, especially if you're a guest here this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to open it to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about being trapped on a beach. A story about being trapped on a beach. Second, be listening for what the big deal about being a widow was in the first century. Why was that an important fact in the story that we're about to read? And second, be listening for where... The original audience's mind in this passage would have been going in the Old Testament. What stories would they have been thinking about as they saw Jesus raise this widow's son from the dead? Well, this morning we're continuing our fall sermon series looking at the life and ministry of Jesus from the gospel according to Luke. And week after week through the fall, it's our intention to reflect on the life of Jesus, to see who he is and what he came to do and what it means for you and me to follow him. And one of the things that you notice as you follow Jesus through the pages of the gospel accounts is that he came performing miracles. And the miracles Jesus performed were intended to authenticate his ministry, to add credibility to the message that he came to proclaim. In his miracles, Jesus is giving us foretastes or appetizers of what is coming when he fully and finally brings restoration and renewal to our lives and to this world. His miracles are always geared toward helping people, always with the intention of pushing back the curse of sin in a person's life. He never just does miracles just to do miracles. They're always driven by his love for others. And they demonstrate his power, his power over nature, over death, over evil spiritual forces. Well, as we pick up our series in Luke chapter 7 this morning, we see Jesus performing a number of miracles. The chapter starts with Jesus healing the centurion's son, a young man who was at the point of death is made well by Jesus. And immediately after that encounter, we pick up with our passage this morning and we see Jesus perform a miracle for a parent whose son had actually already died. In this chapter, we see that Jesus not only has the power to overcome disease, he also has authority over death itself. Let's consider what we might learn about ourselves and about Jesus as we give our attention to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the burr, and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. 
I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the story of Dunkirk. The historical event was actually made into a blockbuster movie back in 2017. But during World War II, the Allies were being pressed deeper and deeper into their own territory by the Nazis. And as the Allies were losing ground on the Western Front, they got pushed to the French beach and port of Dunkirk. If you can get the image in your mind, the Nazis had pushed over 30,000 Allied, 300,000 Allied soldiers to the ocean, and they were not planning to stop. They had the Allied forces against a wall, so to speak, with nowhere to go, with no cover for protection. It was a pretty hopeless situation for the Allied forces, to say the least. In the speech, uh, in a speech to the House of Commons, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill called it a colossal military disaster, saying the whole root and core and brain of the British army had been stranded at Dunkirk and seemed about to be perished or to be captured. Well, you might know how the story ends. Approximately 330, uh, 330,000 troops were evacuated over the span of nine days, in large part due to normal citizens with boats traveling across the English Channel and rescuing soldiers on those personal boats. And the rescue of so many troops against what seemed to be a hopeless situation is sometimes referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. Well, the image that we just talked about of hopelessness and miraculous rescue is a good image to have in your mind as we consider the account that we just read from Luke chapter 7. It's such a hopeless situation that we just read about that no one, no one, including the grieving widow herself, even thinks to ask for help. It's so hopeless that everyone just knew that nothing could be done. Now, while this is a dramatic story, I don't think what we see in this account is that foreign to our own experiences in life. I wonder if there is any place in your life this morning where you feel hopeless. I wonder if there's any area in your life where you feel like you're up against a wall, so to speak, feeling like there's no real options at your disposal, no cover or protection. I wonder if there's any situation you're experiencing where it wouldn't even cross your mind to ask for help because it feels so hopeless. I want to invite you this morning to think about where you feel most hopeless. To really think about it. Where do you feel most hopeless today? Maybe it's a relationship, a besetting sin, desires that you don't want but they just won't go away. Maybe it's a work situation, health concerns you're experiencing. Maybe just the general tone and tenor of our culture and society is causing you to be hopeless. What areas of your life, what areas of this world do you look at and feel a lack of hope? Now I want us to turn and consider how Jesus might want to engage you in that hopelessness. Does Jesus have anything to say? Does he care? Does he have a plan to meet you in the areas of your life where you feel most hopeless? Well, the account that we just read gives us the opportunity to consider these questions for our own lives. In Luke 7, we see Jesus coming in the midst of a hopeless situation in order to bring restoration and healing and hope. And as we reflect on Luke 7, I want us to see that Jesus seeks people out 
in the midst of their hopelessness. He speaks to people in the midst of their hopelessness. And he acts on their behalf in the midst of hopelessness. He seeks, he speaks, he acts. Those are our three points this morning. Let's get started by considering how Jesus seeks people out in the midst of their hopelessness. Well, this is a story that is really helpful to get in your mind's eye. Jesus is traveling south across the desert from Capernaum to a small town called Nain. A large crowd of interested people are following Jesus as he travels from one town to the next. It's early in his ministry, and he's beginning to gain quite a crowd of followers as he proclaims the coming of God's kingdom and performs miracles to authenticate his claims. There was a buzz beginning to pick up about this great teacher and this great prophet. People were impressed. They wanted to follow Jesus to see what he might do next. Surely there were some in the crowd who had already experienced his healing touch in their life and maybe others who wanted that touch. And as Jesus and his group of followers enter this town of Nain, they meet a large funeral procession leaving the city. Perhaps at the city gate, where there would have already been lots of activity and commotion because that's where business was normally conducted in that day and age. So you've got a large crowd at the city gate. You've got a crowd coming in to the town of Nain. You've got a funeral procession coming out of the town of Nain, and they collide. The group that's leaving is heading to bury a young man in the tombs that surround the city. You know, burial wasn't allowed in Jewish towns in that day and age. People were carried out of the city to be buried in the tombs surrounding the city. They were most likely going to bury this young man next to his father who had died some years before. That's implicit in the text. So you can picture all these people running into each other at the city gate, and you've got to wonder, Was the fact that Jesus was entering the city at the same time a funeral procession was leaving a mere coincidence? Or was this the hand of God orchestrating events so that people might be encouraged in the midst of their hopeless situation? This is an ordained event where the way of life is about to collide with the way of death. And as we enter the story, Luke immediately takes our attention to one character the widow whose son had just died. Now, it's important that Luke identifies her as a widow. That's not a throwaway identification marker. And that this boy who she is heading to bury is her only son. In the first century, it would have been devastating for a woman to be all alone with no male in the household. Very different than our day and age. As a widow in the first century, this son would have been this woman's only source of economic support, her only source of protection, her only source of hope for the future. And on top of that, the family line would have been done for good in this instance. In a sense, this woman's life was functionally over. In the sizable crowd following the funeral that knew her and her situation is a demonstration of the community's grief and heartfelt compassion for her. If there was ever a hopeless situation, this is it. How does Jesus respond to the hopelessness he encounters here? Well, look at verse 13, where we read, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. We see that Jesus seeks this woman out. And he does it without any sort of special request from anyone. You've got to notice that in this passage. This isn't how things normally work in the Gospels. 
In fact, this is the only instance in all the gospel accounts where we see Jesus approach someone and perform a miracle without any special request from them. She doesn't ask Jesus to do this. She assumes her situation is too far gone for him to have any effect in her life. She didn't ask for help. She didn't beg Jesus to meet her needs. She was simply hurting. I mean, who would have even thought to ask for help in such a hopeless situation? At least with sickness, there's a glimmer of hope, right? The situation that we're reading about here is absolutely hopeless. Yet we see Jesus move towards this woman's hopelessness in order to bring healing and hope and restoration to her life. Jesus moves towards this woman with unprovoked compassion. What does this teach us about Jesus? Let's stop and ask that question quickly. Well, it teaches us that Jesus moves towards hopeless people. And this might sound simple, and I'm sure it does if you've been in the church for any amount of time, but it is encouraging and it's something that we need to be reminded of on a regular weekly basis because we tend to believe that we'll experience vibrant relationship with Jesus once we overcome our hopelessness, once we get things in order. Once we're able to get back on track, then we can turn our attention to relationship with Jesus. But the gospel accounts are constantly reminding us that Jesus meets us in our hopelessness. That's where he does his best work. He is the one who seeks us out. Not only does Jesus seek us out in the midst of our hopelessness, though, we see that in this passage. This passage also shows us that Jesus speaks to people in the midst of their hopelessness and helplessness. We see Jesus speaking with great compassion. In verse 13, Jesus notices this woman crying. She would have been leading the funeral procession likely. And he's filled with compassion for the hopelessness that he sees. And he speaks words of comfort. Don't cry. We also see in verse 13 that Jesus had compassion on her. Now, some people translate this verse to say, Jesus' heart overflowed with compassion. That's the type of strong emotion that's being conveyed with this word in this verse. His heart was overflowing with the helplessness and the hopelessness that he was encountering. You got to get the picture in your mind again. Jesus is in the midst of a very large crowd and his heart is drawn to this widow in particular. And in a crowd so large, Jesus would have had to have been close enough to this woman for her to hear him speak to her. This action reveals something about God's character. The Bible teaches us, as most of you know, that Jesus is God who took on human form. God who came down from heaven as a man. So how Jesus acts reveals to us who God is, what God is like. In the life of Jesus, it gives us tangible glimpses into the heart of God. And the way Jesus responds to hopeless situations is the way God responds to hopeless situations. And this is so important for us to hear because so often we think that God doesn't care about particular situations in our life, that he has bigger fish to fry, that he's not concerned with the minute details of what we experience on a daily and weekly basis. We tend to think that God is concerned with bitter and better things than our lives. And so we look at the hopelessness we experience Maybe the chronic sickness or the marriage strain or the loneliness, the financial hardship or unbelieving family members, 
the shame we have over things we've done and said in the past, we look at these things and think, surely God doesn't care about those things. But Jesus shows us in this passage that God does care. Pain is searingly real to God. God's heart overflows with compassion when he considers the damage that sin has done in this world and in the lives of people that he loves. And he goes to great lengths to speak words of healing to hopeless people. I wonder if you've ever thought of God like this. As one whose heart overflows with compassion and love when he thinks of you in the way that sin has damaged your life. A good question to ask yourself this morning would be, what does God think of when you come to his mind? When you come to the mind of God, is God frustrated? Is he angry? Is he apathetic? Is he impatient? Does he wish you'd get your act together? Is he close to giving up on you? Is he smiling? Is he frowning? This passage invites us to change the way we think about how God relates to us personally about how God relates to the pain that we experience in life. And this passage also invites us to ask the question, are we willing to be a conduit of God's healing words to other people? To bring words of restoration and hope to others to whom sin has devastated? Does your heart overflow with compassion when you see what sin has done to people in this world? Not just fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but those who are not yet following Jesus. Do you start with compassion with people? Or do you just immediately get angry with them? Jesus begins with compassion when he sees what sin has done to our lives. And now you and I get to give others what we've received from him. Words of life and hope. A posture of compassion as we initially engage with people. This passage shows us that Jesus is one who seeks us out and he does it in order to speak words of hope into our lives. And if we keep following the story, we'll also see that Jesus takes action to bring healing and restoration here. And if you were only to read up to verse 13 in our passage where Jesus says, do not cry or do not weep, we may come to the conclusion that Jesus has misread the room, right? Misread the situation. Many of us have experienced the death of loved ones, maybe even recently. And how heartless would it be for someone to come to you and comfort you with the phrase, do not cry, do not weep. Maybe he's insensitive to the reality of what he's encountering, you might think. After all, this widow's son had just died, right? Her only source of protection, provision, security in the world is gone. She's all alone, without any hope for the future, completely helpless and hopeless. Jesus sees her in this situation and tells her not to cry. Well, when we seek to comfort a friend grieving the death of a loved one, for us to say don't cry would be insensitive at best. This woman might have been understandably angry after hearing Christ's words of comfort here. Don't cry. Are you serious? Do you have any idea what's just happened? Do you know that my life is now over? But Jesus did not misunderstand the situation. He isn't being insensitive in this instance. Jesus' invitation to stop crying is only sensible if he can make a difference in this woman's life, if he can enter her hopelessness and bring hope. 
I mean, it's for hopelessness like this that Jesus came into the world. He did not come to call and to save the healthy. He came for the sick. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus sees her pain. His heart feels compassion for her pain. It overflows with compassion when he sees the tears running down her eyes. And now he's about to take her pain away. And he tells her, after he tells her not to cry, Jesus turns and he walks towards the stretcher. It would have been a stretcher that was carrying her son's body. In those days, the body would have been wrapped and carried on this stretcher type of board by a few men as they head out to the tombs outside the city. Jesus walked toward the body. People would have been thinking, what's going on? He isn't about to touch the body. Surely he's not going to do that. Doesn't he know our laws about clean and unclean things? So what a group of Jewish people would have been thinking in that day and age. And what Jesus does in this account would have been shocking to that first century Jewish audience because a Jew stayed as far away from dead things as they possibly could. And you certainly never touched them. According to God's law in the Old Testament, which is all this audience would have had at the time, they didn't have the New Testament. The Old Testament Hebrew Bible was their Bible. They were familiar with it. To touch a dead body would cause a person to become unclean and defiled, putting him out of community with God and with other people, with the community of God. But Jesus walks towards the coffin. He touches this young man and commands him to rise. Human need always took precedence over ceremonial purity with Jesus. Jesus takes the impurity upon himself so that this widow could once again have the hope and protection and security of her son. He says, I'll take it on so that you can be clean, so that you can have life. Jesus doesn't shrink back from death in order to bring life to this young man and restoration to this widow. He raises this young man back from the dead with only a word. He says, arise. In verse 14, look at it. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. And as Jesus brought this man back to life, good Jewish minds in the audience would have been taken immediately back to the story we just read this morning in our Old Testament reading. 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah raises a widow's son by God's power. They also would have been thinking about another story in 2 Kings chapter 4 where Elisha raises another woman's son from the dead through God's power. But in those accounts, these prophets, they exert great personal energy and drama. You heard it read this morning. Elijah has to call on the name of the Lord and stretch himself over the body of the dead child three times before the child was raised from the dead. Jesus' seemingly effortless call to arise, contrasts with these Old Testament examples of resurrection. Jesus did nothing elaborate here. He didn't even have to call on the name of the Lord. He simply said the word and this young man was raised from the dead. And this is a deliberate echo from those Old Testament passages that the audience would have heard and exclaimed, God is visiting his people again. He's performing miracles and offering hope. Yet this prophet, this teacher, he doesn't call on the name of God to perform the miracles and the hope that he's offering because he is God. This is God himself, the long-promised rescuer, the savior of God's people walking in their midst, visiting his people in the midst of their hopelessness. He's visiting them in order to bring life. 
Jesus is on a mission to make all things new, which we can taste even now truly, and will one day experience fully and finally when Jesus completes the work that he has already begun. Look, this account helps us see that Jesus is with his people in their hopelessness. He demonstrates great compassion and love for this widow, but he's demonstrated his love and compassion for you and me in an even more profound way. You see, this woman's son would eventually die again, right? He'd die a second time. Maybe she'd be dead by that point. We don't know. There's no guarantee that her pain wouldn't return. But two years after this story, Jesus would stare down the cross, death itself, the author of life staring down death, experiencing the greatest imaginable hopelessness, taking all the effects of sin upon himself, all the uncleanness and pollution that you and I produce, and experiencing death itself so that we might one day soon never have to experience hopelessness and death ever again. Because of what Jesus has done, we can walk through this fallen world with hope. Hoping for what God promises to do in our lives now, and what he will one day do fully and finally when he returns. Praise God that he has visited his people. That is our great hope. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you do not turn a blind eye to our sin and our suffering and our hopelessness. You are one who has come to taste the effects of sin on our behalf because you love us so deeply. And we pray this morning that as we find comfort in the fact that you took on flesh in order to come and be with us, that you would encourage us, that you would make us a hopeful people because you are one who has visited us. We pray that that would be the tune of our lives even this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.